0: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
1: Just one week today until school starts. In fact, a week from right now, many of you will be getting up and trying to make sure the kids get... Things put together and find their running shoes that somehow have gone missing from the day before. And because, of course, why wouldn't they? And pack a lunch and do whatever. But others, you know what? Others are probably going to be a little bit worried about how they are going to give their kids the stuff they need. We hear a lot in this city. We hear a lot about the challenges that some people have meeting needs and. Paying bills and even feeding themselves and all the rest. Well, so let me talk about, uh, for the next few minutes, um, a really nice program that uh, and a really helpful program that's being put together. Uh, to do that, I want to bring in Darren Green, who is the president of the Hamilton Steelworkers Area Council. Darren, how are you this morning? I'm good. Glad how are you? I'm excellent. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate this. This is uh, this is a good thing that I think a lot of people uh, will want to know about, and if there's a way, uh, may want to participate in. It's called Operation Backpack. Tell me about where uh, before we get to what we're doing now and what you got. What we, not we? What you guys are doing now? Uh, go a little. Go back a little. Tell us a little of the background of this.
2: So back in, uh, I think, 2010, we had uh, one of our executive members was uh, a member of the board uh, for the United Way. And he came to us and he had heard of uh, a couple schools that were uh, looking for backpacks. And so he approached me and as uh, the president of uh, the local and the, uh, the human resource manager said, asked if we could do something. So we did. We did a, a plant gate collection and the company matched up the funds and we did 92 backpacks.
1: And these were, well, by the way, these were backpacks, but they also, it wasn't just the backpack, there was stuff in them, right? School supplies and filled, things in them?
2: Fully filled with supplies, you know, anything okay. they would need to get back to school for the elementary schools. So we took them to Prince of Wales uh, Memorial and, I think, J.E. Davies schools, and the reception we got from the uh, the teachers was overwhelming, because they, they couldn't believe it, and they, uh, they said that, you know what, we could use more of these, and so the program's grown ever since. We've been doing this for 13 years and we're up to 1500 backpacks.
1: Yeah, that's, that's growing a little bit, going from 92 to 1500. That's remarkable. So how, I mean, it's great that there's the need, well, it's not great. There's the need. It's the great that there's Mm -hmm. the need, but that you guys are filling it. You got to have the full sentence there or else the great part doesn't sound so good. But how has the, how has this caught on? What has been, what has it been about this program that has appealed so much to your members and to people who have contributed to this?
2: Well, our, our mantra is uh, community matters. And throughout the year, we do a number of different things for uh, the charities here in the, uh, the city. And uh, our locals have bought into this. And it's not just the locals, but the community uh, at large. I mean, we had to raise $53,000 this year. And uh, a lot of that is individual donations that people have made. We, we have Arsler, Middle Hamilton East Stelko's on board now and a number of other uh uh companies that we represent have jumped in and they they've recognized the need. I mean, we looked at code red back in the day and based our uh our, our uh giving on that. Mm. And that was the inner city. But we've come to realize that you know, poverty right across the city from Dundas to Stony Creek to the mountain, it's not just
1: the inner city anymore. Yeah, I and I, I understand that Cats are involved in some way with this. Um, there are, as I say, a bunch of other uh, organizations, but it's, uh, it's it's definitely a uh, uh, steel workers-driven kind of thing. So at this point, um, 92 backpacks filled with stuff. Uh, it's, it's a lot still when you think about it, but, you know, there's probably one or two people could have stuffed those and got those put together in a couple hours if they were putting their mind to it. 1500 is a bit of an operation. How, who, who does this? How do you get this all put together and ready to go?
2: Volunteers. We, uh, we put this together. We send out a call to the locals, uh, and we have representatives from the different sponsoring companies that could that come. And, uh, you mentioned the Tiger Cats. We've got Chris, uh, Chris Van Zell and Dylan Wynn and Peter Diakowski are coming, uh, to help us, uh, this, this year around along with, uh, uh, uh uh people from the street that are
1: just uh, just want to help out um the uh, the note that I have here the the press release that I have here says that it's tomorrow at nine am. Is that for a is that when people if they wanted to come and help or or do you want people to come and help? do you have enough already or what's um where yeah. do you stand right now?
2: Yeah, I think we have enough people right now. I mean, we actually get fifty or sixty people that uh, come out and, uh, uh, help pack for the day, and then we deliver to the schools. And I should mention that uh, St. Matthew's House, we give them five hundred bags, mm-hmm. and they they donate uh, or they uh, distribute to their clients. So it's, uh, it's a it's really big program.
1: Absolutely, uh, Darren. Just before we let you go, because we're uh, we're running out of time here. Uh, if somebody was interested in contributing, because obviously you've got the volunteers now to mm-hmm. do the packing and everything. But if someone said, "Hey, I like this idea." Is there a way they can contribute?
2: Yeah, there's a GoFundMe campaign uh, that they can be fun- you can find on Facebook uh, under Hamilton Steelworkers Area Council, or we're uh, need transfer uh, to Operation Backpack at hotmail.com, and we appreciate any uh, any uh, donations at all. And uh, we're uh, we're still collecting because we're still got to make our target fifty three thousand uh, dollars.
1: That's excellent, Darren uh, Darren Green, president of the Hamilton Steelworkers Area Council. Well done. Uh, appreciate you taking time today. Thank you very much for having us.
0: You're listening to the good morning, Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. All you gotta do
1: is go on to Google right now and type in the three words, student housing and Canada, and then hit on news. See what stories pop up. And let me tell you some of the headlines in the grips of a housing crisis. Will capping international students fix anything? A look at how another one, a look at how Canada's housing woes are straining the budgets of foreign students. Canada considers foreign student cap over housing crisis. Canada's universities are building new dorms just nowhere near enough. Record levels of international students straining Canada's housing supply further. And university students struggling to find housing amid affordability crisis. Clearly, it's not one place. It's all over the place. This is a concern the cost of rentals and the availability of rental units when we are looking to bring students into the area to go to school here. So uh, redeemer is going to be opening Mohawk is going to be opening, but McMaster is in uh, welcome back week. How is McMaster doing? As far as this goes, I want to bring in Abigail Samuels. Who's the vice president of education with the McMaster student union. Abigail, how are you this morning?
3: I'm doing well. How are
1: you? Excellent. Thank you for coming on. This is a this is such a tough one, and I, I don't I don't know how is McMaster doing with this. Is this a problem here, or have we figured this one out?
3: Definitely, um, the pressures on the general rent uh, housing market um, has been felt within the student community as well. It is definitely something that, as a collective as a provincial collective we are advocating for um however it's important to note that that these pressures on both the rental housing market um, as well as the cost this is this is about pro- the province and it's about the failure of the provincial province to provide it's honestly no longer a publicly funded system it's more so a publicly supported system. Investment into education has been on a steady decline, despite the fact um, that inflation has been on an all-time rise. And while we do celebrate and appreciate the cap on domestic tuition um, post- Post-secondary education um, contributions from the provincial government has not matched the rate of inflation, the rate of rising costs, which then secretly forces the hands of um, institutions to further recruit international students so that they can fill those funding gaps, given the fact that there is no federal regulation um, or no federal caps on international tuition.
1: So, okay, uh, and that that talks a lot about the tuition issue and, excuse me, and that's certainly something that is uh, of concern, but uh, uh, back to the housing issue though, because we, this is is where uh, a lot of people are pointing right now and saying, where do people go now? I know McMaster has plans for uh, a new uh, large student housing construction, uh, I believe on Main Street. I don't know when that's, I can't remember when that's supposed to be done. But is there housing right now that can students who come here, can they find housing? Can they, whether on campus or off campus, is that easy to do?
3: Definitely not. Um, as for our first years, uh, McMaster is actually one of the only institutions um, to not have a first year uh, residence guarantee. So first years who come into McMaster are not guaranteed a spot because we actually have a deficit of about a thousand beds for our incoming first year class yes um and then that lack of housing is unfortunately then replicated outside of direct mcmaster grounds um last year westell did not build any more housing Uh, it's still we're still hearing issues of availability but as well as affordability um, particularly with students who don't necessarily know their rights as a tenant to the fullest extent, as well as the pressures for availability of housing. It allows um, students to be exposed to predatory uh, rental behaviors, such as um, unlawful or uh, illegitimate leases, um, incredible, incredibly high rent prices. We've seen increases in rent between tenants um, of upwards of 20%. Um, myself, I'm a victim of rent evictions. Um To the best of my knowledge, my last landlord um, had evicted us with the reasoning of uh, needing to do construction. And then proceeded to give our leases to um, new tenants with to the best of my knowledge upwards of double the rent that I used to pay.
1: Do you believe that universities should be allowed to take in more students than they can provide first year housing for first year students or, or should or should there be something that says you can only take as many students as you can offer housing for in the first year?
3: There's definitely concerns of ethics um, in in taking more students than uh, we can hold. However, we do have to bring back the responsibility as well as the blame on the lack of uh, provisions for uh, municipalities to be able to build more housing. And that's directly reflected by the lack of contributions by the provincial government. So actually, um, McMaster Student Union uh, last year, we um, were in quite a few conversations and in productive conversation with about 10 city councillors um, asking to for the city to use inclusionary zoning as a tool for affordable housing, which I can speak on um, if you're interested.
1: Well, and, and okay, so you spoke to the councillors and I, I know clearly you've put the blame on the province here, what have the councillors done? What has council done to respond to those comments then? What, what has council done to make it better?
3: Mm mm-hmm. uh, So Council shares our concerns of a lack of affordable and quality housing. Um, and we've been looking at tools such as inclusionary zoning, which is basically uh, 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 looking at Ontario regulation where um, municipalities can expedite um, affordable housing um, construction around protected major transit station areas. So these are areas of um, massive transit hubs, where then when you're building more housing around those areas, it's easier for people to get on the transit and be able to get where they need to go. Um,
1: okay. we uh, Listen, I appreciate it. It, it is absolutely a, uh, a an issue everywhere. I mean, as I say, we're hearing about this everywhere and uh, obviously not any different here, Mac. If if those numbers are right, and I'm not disputing what you're saying, but that we're a 1,000 units short on first-year students alone, boy, that uh, that is absolutely a problem. Abigail Samuels, Vice President of Education with the McMaster Student Union. Abigail, thanks for taking the time today.
3: Thank you so very much. Have a great day. You're listening to the
0: Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
1: We are a week today away from kids going back to school. In fact, an hour ago, I said a week from exactly right now, you'll be getting the kids ready or starting to fuss to get everything ready. Well, now, a week from right now, guaranteed your house is chaos if you have kids in school. It is going to be full-on getting ready to get out the door at this moment. But we also know that there has been lots of talk in recent days and weeks and bluster and back and forth about the possibility that there could be a teacher strike at some point. We hope not. We hope that something can get resolved one way or another. But that talk is once again bouncing around that uh, teachers are saying the province is not negotiating and the province is saying teachers need to be more realistic and, you know, all the usual stuff. Nothing new. There is, what's that old line? There is nothing new under the sun especially when it comes to teachers and the province. It is, every time, it's the same thing. However, what about the idea that we're not spending enough on education? Is that, is that an argument that can be realistically made? We heard that last hour. We were talking about housing with university students. And our guest was pointing out that spending is dropping. Well, is that the case in education in this country? Let me bring in Jay Goldberg, the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation joins me now. Jay, how are you? Doing very well. Great to be with you. You as well. So, um, you guys look at these kind of numbers is education funding dropping or stagnating or doing any of the things that we keep hearing in these discussions. No, education
4: spending is doing none of those things. Um, You know, and I wrote an op-ed to put out these key facts. So, you know, 10 years ago, we were spending, under the McGuinty government, $24 billion a year on education. Today, under the Ford government, we're at $35 billion, which is a 43% increase that outpaces inflation. The government is also uh, planning to increase education spending by an average of $600 million over the next five years. And the last point I'll make is that we spend way more per student than any other large province. Ontario spends $1,000 more per student than Alberta and $500 more per student than BC. So we are spending a lot on education. Spending has gone up above the rate of inflation. The Ford government is planning to still increase the education budget and we are outpacing other provinces.
1: I was very surprised by the numbers that you put out or that someone put out. Uh, I was very surprised when I read, if this is true, that per student spending in Ontario right now is $14,000 a year. That's, I don't know what I thought the number was going to be, but that's way higher than what I was expecting.
4: That's right. It is $14,000 a year, and that's $1,000 more than the typical student in Alberta and $500 more than the typical student in British Columbia. So. Spending is happening here in Ontario in the education sector. And, you know, we thought it was important to put this all out to let folks know that, yes, in fact, we are spending a lot on education. Money is going up. Uh, the government is definitely spending more than other provinces. And so some of these uh, lines that we hear from the teachers' union saying that Ford is cutting education or that somehow it's underfunded, that's simply not true. We're spending the most out of all the large provinces. Uh, and spending has gone up uh, considerably, and, and the government continues to increase education spending.
1: Okay, so if if that's the case, and, and again, we're going uh, to... I'm, I'm taking your word right now. I don't have the numbers in front of... I mean, I have the numbers. I don't have... I can't verify or not what you're saying, but let's go with what you're saying here. There is always this perception, then, that we are somehow behind or that more needs to be spent on education. If we are ahead of everyone else, if we're spending $14,000 per student Why, where is the money going? Why is there a problem then with the suggestions that there's not enough going into the system? Are we spending it wrong, I guess, is the short question in a long rambling question.
4: Right, so um, I would say, first of all, these numbers are directly taken from a Fraser Institute report that was recently put out. Uh, So everyone can go over there and check the facts. Um, But I would also say that uh, you know we are spending here in Ontario over 70% of our education budget goes to teacher pay and pay for education bureaucrats within the system. Um, the average teacher here in Ontario now makes over $100,000 according to Statistics Canada, which is $18,000 more than the average teacher in Quebec and $10,000 more than the average teacher in BC. And it's $30,000 more than the average taxpayer here in Ontario. So over 70% of Ontario's education budget is going towards salaries and so if the unions are saying not enough money is making it into the classrooms you know the explanation may very well be uh, a lot of it's getting eaten up by salary and again the average teacher salary is now over
1: $100,000 yeah i again I, I just i keep going back and and maybe i should maybe i should not be surprised by this and and uh... Uh, again, I, I don't know what I thought the number would be, but I keep going back to the $14,000 per student. And it is, you know, I, I think people listening, whether they are fully on board with the teacher side, which is fine. I mean, everyone's allowed to have their point of view or think that it's too much, whatever. I I, I just, I can't wrap my head around the fact that we're, it's 14000 So a class of, I mean, you do the math, what a class of 25 kids, how much money is going into that classroom? It's, it is a lot of money. It's a. I mean, I don't think there's any way around it, Jay. Again, wh- whichever side you're on, I don't think we can dispute. There's a lot of money going into classrooms if it's fourteen thousand dollars per kid.
4: Well, absolutely, because if you're looking at that, and as you said, with a classroom of twenty-five kids, that's you know three hundred fifty thousand dollars you're getting to, right? So yeah. It's a lot of money, uh, and more money is going into the system than ever before. We were encouraged to see the other day that the Minister of Education announced that high school teachers have agreed to uh, collect a bargain until October. And if they don't settle things, it'll go to binding arbitration. So that's good to see uh, that, that um, you know, at least we're seeing some steps mm-hmm. from one union that mean that there may not be a strike. Because as recently as two weeks ago, we heard the union saying there could be a strike in October so. You know, we thought it was important to put these facts out there. They're all from Statistics Canada or the Fraser Institute just to lay out. We are spending $14,000 per student. It's much more than other provinces. Spending has grown considerably and it's still going up. So we thought it was important to get that narrative out there.
1: Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for doing this. Thank you.
0: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well,
1: there are some more controversial issues perhaps around here, but one of the big ones that people are talking about these days, and it involves gender identity and parents and kids and schools and my goodness, you sort of mixed a lot of things into the broth. Um, In Saskatchewan, uh, Saskatchewan has joined New Brunswick in adopting a new policy, a pronoun policy for schools that will require parental consent for students who wish to change their preferred name or pronouns. Well, uh, this obviously a little controversial. Angus Reid has decided to look into the numbers and see what people think about this. Dave Korzynski is the research director with the Angus Reid Institute, joins me now. Dave, thanks for doing this today.
5: No problem. Thanks for having me.
1: When I looked at the numbers that you got, and when you asked a bunch of people about what should happen, I don't know that I am totally surprised that huge percentages say to some degree or other, parents should be made aware of this. This, this should not be done in isolation just with the kid. But I don't know if I was really surprised because I don't really know where we are right now. But clearly that is the case.
5: Yeah, you know, there have been discussions in recent years about how to handle this. You know, there have been school districts that have been more leaning on the side of, you know, if if a child doesn't feel comfortable sharing this with their parents for whatever reason, uh, some school districts have said that they would protect that. They feel like if, if the child isn't comfortable, maybe there is a reason, maybe there's a safety issue behind that. Um, So it it kind of came to light um, because of some of these issues of of kids wanting to identify differently, either by a different name or pronoun at school, and whether or not their parents should need to know about this, whether or not the parents should need to give uh, some form of consent or approval for this. So, as you mentioned, New Brunswick was the first uh, province to implement a policy in their their school districts, Saskatchewan following. What we find is that Canadians are pretty sympathetic to the idea that parents should at the very least know about this. Uh, about 80% nationally say that this is something that you, you've got to inform parents about if their child is changing their, uh, their identity at school. Uh, 43% say that parents should have to uh, consent to this. So you can see a bit of a division there. 43% say information and consent are necessary. Thirty-five percent say uh, information is necessary, but m- consent not so much. And then fourteen percent, a small smaller group, say that neither is necessary. They don't think that the, mm. the parent should be informed at all. Um, so you've got a, a population that's pretty divided on how to handle this, and it, it makes these uh, announcements when when a province does do this. It makes it a little bit, um, you know, politically. Uh, it, it's something that Charged. that can rile yeah. rile some people up uh, on on each side of this. So it's a it's a tough issue to look at, but we want to handle it with some some nuance and and uh, and some care.
1: Breaking it down a little further, I don't know if you've been able to do this. Of the fourteen percent mm-hmm. that you just mentioned, who said parents should neither know nor have any you know anything to do with this, how many of those are younger people? I mean, really younger people, as in probably less likely to have children of their own because I have to believe mm-hmm. that that is going to factor into some of those decisions that it, it it changes things when you have kids
5: it does and it's it is a significant difference if you look at say the 45 plus dividing line you only get about 10 percent of of people who are older than 45 years of age who who say that they they're parents shouldn't be informed at all. If you look at, for example, 18 to 24-year-olds, about three times higher than that, 28%. Uh, 25 to 34-year-olds, it's about 20%. So that's really the dividing line is people who are younger than 35. And we actually did ask um, for whether or not people ha- who have children who are younger than 18, so who are minors, what their views are on this. And it's, Surprisingly quite similar. So 12% among those who have children younger than 18 say that it's not the parents, uh it's not really the parents' business, they shouldn't be informed or have a say. And it's 16% for those who don't have kids who are minors. So pretty similar there. Um and the the distinction being that. You know, information is is largely the vast majority support that. It's just that consent aspect of it that tends to divide people. They're not quite sure that a parent should be able to say, "No, my child cannot identify as uh, whatever they have have gone forth with." So I, I think that's that's the interesting portion of this for a lot of Canadians.
1: Uh, I mean, you do a lot of these things. You talk about a lot of different issues. Does it d- did these numbers in any way surprise you or. You know, looking that when you look across the spectrum, age, whatever, parents by and large, very strongly are on the side of we have to at least know. Does that in any way surprise you? That's exactly what I would have expected. Me.
5: Yeah, I would have thought maybe parents would have actually been a little bit higher on that that uh that first response, which is the information and the consent. Because only forty-eight percent of parents uh with children who are minors say that. And it's it's 41% for those who don't have children in that age group. That's only a seven point difference. I would have thought we would have had a pretty strong majority of parents with children saying, you know, I would like to know and I would like to have a have a say. Um, so certainly they want to know what's going on. But even those parents aren't necessarily sure that that their you know right of veto or approval would be appropriate. So I think that's what stood out most to me. That and and just the, the ideological kind of split that we have in this country on so many issues. And you see it on this one as well. Um, for those who are past conservative supporters, 64% say parents should be informed and give consent. It's just 30% for past liberal voters and just 20% for past New Democrats. So that's also, you know, much like everything that we're seeing in our political discourse, this one quite divides people based on you know, who they vote for and which party they kind of identify with.
1: All right. So let's go to politics because these discussions always seem to end up in politics, as you just alluded. I I don't know how we, I don't know what we did before politics divided everything Mm -hmm. we did, but I saw something today or yesterday or recently that uh, Pierre Polyev was quoted as saying, and I can't remember which position he took, whether it was that parents should know or parents should allow, but regardless, that sounds like then it's a political winner for him. Across the country, almost to say, parents should at least be involved in this somehow. Based on your numbers, that's a political winner.
5: Yeah, you know the the, the quote that I see from Polyev was responding to the um, New Brunswick um, issue, saying that you know, "quote unquote," let's let parents raise kids. So he's really saying that he's he's kind of supporting that position and the, and the province's right to. Um, to impose these policies and to put these in their school districts. Whereas for Justin Trudeau, uh, take a really uh, opposite kind of uh, we've got to protect children's identity and, and, you know, trans kids do face a lot of bullying um, in their everyday lives and in school. So this can be something that is, is you know, a, a bit delicate to deal with. And I think that, you know, the politics of it is really challenging because like you said, there are political winners in the, the in the discourse, um, so-called winners. And this is one of those things where if Pierre Polyev chooses to to talk about this, his position will be very popular with his his supporters right now. For him looking longer term though, these social issues tend to galvanize a larger portion of Canadians on the mm-hmm. center left. So the liberal and new democratic um, view on social positions on, on things like marriage equality on things like LGBTQ rights, indigenous issues. A lot of these conversations that we have um, are not winners for the conservatives. So it, it is a risk for him looking to grow his, his coalition and get To that 40 percent mark if we're looking purely at political terms um to try to get a majority government in canada these are ones that are that are tricky for him because they they are short-term short-term winners and issues that might not have a lot of room to grow for him so they are tricky but but yeah, for step, now, think... step
1: into it but uh, but walk very delicately because uh you you could quickly go from something positive to uh to a bit of a mess uh dave we gotta run dave korzynski research director of the angus reed institute always appreciate you taking time thanks for doing this dave
5: no
1: problem,
0: Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
1: Last year, in Oakville, there was a very heavily publicized or sort of ongoing story. It involved a teacher at an Oakville high school who wore, who had very large prosthetic breasts, and it was a well students at that school. Some called it a distraction. Uh, there were protests, there were threats of violence, there were bomb threats. There was, it was all kinds of stuff. It was a, it was a, it was a story. Well, that teacher apparently reports say that teacher is now going to be teaching in Hamilton this year. Uh, Nora Francis Henderson secondary school has sent out a note warning families of potential protests because of a new teacher. Hasn't named the teacher, but reports say it is that same teacher question is what if there have been threats and other things, what responsibility does the board and the school have to make sure that it has not created a difficult and possibly dangerous situation? It's a very complicated story. I want to bring in Puneet Tiwari, who's a senior partner at Levitt Sheik. Um, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for jumping in.
6: Yeah, no problem. Pleasure to be here.
1: So at its basic, most basic point, point for this, we would hope that nobody would threaten anybody, nobody would call in bomb threats, nobody would be disruptive or anything. That, that's, that would be humanity at its best. Uh, however, that's not what happened last year. So what, what is the responsibility of a school board or of a school when they have brought when they have brought someone in who has been, in the past, there's a history of issues around them, very complicated story. What 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 responsibility does the board and the school have now to ensure that these things don't happen?
6: Right. So um, a school board or a school, and teachers for that matter, always have a duty to ensure that not only that their students are safe, but uh, that they're there to receive an education. And these types of distractions make that a lot more difficult. And um, I mean, you said it last year we we saw a lot of you know bomb threats media uh, social media posts by the students even right um so the school has seen what happened last year now um i I, have heard they're taking some measures uh with you know students coming in and out of certain exits and regarding photos and cameras but uh they they have a duty to ensure that the students are safe and now they should be on higher alert because of this individual being at the.
1: Okay, so uh, let me go back to where I started this, because let's say something was to happen. We don't, We do not want anything to happen, and at its core, you would say if something happens, it is ultimately the fault and the responsibility of whoever were to do that. If someone were to make a threat, it is the responsibility and the fault of the person making that threat. No one's suggesting anything to the contrary. But can the school board, understanding what has happened in the past, because there is precedent, there is history here, if that were to happen, yes, it's the fault of the person doing it, but does any fault fall, legally, does any fault fall on the school board?
6: Well, uh, it's a good question. It's hard to say right now. We'd have to see what happens. But uh, from what I understand, the school's already taking steps to best protect itself. So there's already – they understand they have some kind of heightened duty of care due to their knowledge that, you know, something could happen or there's a higher risk of something happening. That school has, you know, there's a special rules on, on in, entry, exit, et cetera. So would it be the school's fault or would they share blame? Uh, legally, it, it really depends on what the end result is, and of course, none of us want to see anything happen. But it, it is quite possible, yes.
1: Well, and, and again, it's an unusual circumstance because we have seen something before. This is this is not uh, uh, in in a vacuum. We've it's not a theoretical thing. We've seen what happened last year with this, and and you know, I keep repeating myself. We hope that that's not the case here. But as soon as I heard this story, at first, I thought. Uh, you know, it's, is this, is this setting up for a repeat? You, you hope not. But again, if it does, uh, you do wonder, you, I mean, I do wonder. And what about human rights? I mean, if you talked about that, ultimately you are, kids go to the school to get an education. If this becomes a distraction, again, the fault of the people making the distraction, but for the kids inside the school, could they make a human rights claim that, Hey, I was denied normalcy because of what happened?
6: Right, that, that's interesting. So um, I don't think the kids could make a human rights claim that they were, they were denied uh, a right because uh, of this particular teacher and the accommodation the teacher received. Now, we all know that everyone has the right to you know self-identify as, as they want, but you know what? The school has a right to ask this teacher or all teachers... Uh, to dress a specific way. They can implement a dress code. They can do it for students. They can also do it for teachers, regardless, um, you know, if they're unionized or not. And, um, they can also ask the teachers, as they can ask the students or any other teacher, to act a specific way, uh, through uh, a code of conduct. And so these are, these are things the school or the school board can do. Um, to, pre- to prevent this teacher enacting uh, mm. so egregiously,
1: let us uh, let us hope that uh, that nothing happens this year. I mean, as I say, it's uh, it, it's interesting that the school, even before school started, was sending out letters saying "be aware." Um, what that means, uh, we'll we'll find out. Apuni Tuari from Sheik, thank you so much for taking
0: the time today. My pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
1: Automakers at three of Canada's largest automakers, Ford, General Motors, Stellantis, have now all voted between 98 and 99% in favor of a strike mandate. Probably not totally shocking. A lot of people are voting for strikes, looking for more money. We've had the HSR workers here in Hamilton voted for a strike. We just set, just have a tentative agreement with CUPE, who was down that path. We've got teachers talking about it. Uh, seems to be everybody feels things are so expensive right now that they need to catch up and uh, and get more money. I want to bring in Dr. Ian Lee, professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Dr. Lee, thanks for this today.
7: Uh, my pleasure, Scott.
1: So I, I'm not shocked that the automakers, uh, the workers, have looked to do this. My my comment on this, though, is if everything is so expensive that everybody, and it's not just the automakers, so many people, if everything is so expensive that everybody needs to get more, so they're pushing possibly toward a strike, Mm and then we get a settlement that will give much more, will that not drive up the price of the things that they are creating, which will then only make things more expensive, so everyone else then has to complain that they don't have enough, so they need to make more? Is this not an endless cycle of driving inflation up?
7: Yes. Yes, it is. It is the nightmare scenario of the Bank of Canada. Um, And for those who think, oh, no, no, that can't happen, I lived through it in the mid-late 70s. And this was when the uh, Trudeau government, the Pierre Trudeau government, uh, was running very significant deficits and they refused to take inflation seriously and they just kept kicking it down the road. And inflation got worse and worse. It went from 4 to 6 to 8 to 10. It finally peaked at 14%. And there were strikes. In fact, if if my memory serves me well, the last time I looked at their strike record history in Canada, this is aggregate strikes for the country. I believe that that was the most, uh, we had more strikes than any other period in our history, and that was mid to late 70s. And it was finally addressed. We know what happened is they drove interest rates up to 20 and um, and drove the economy into a, uh, the worst recession since the Great Depression. But it worked. I mean, it was very painful. Yes, people lost their jobs. Yes, there was personal suffering. No question about that. But we also it also drove inflation down they put the genie back in the bottle and uh, we had inflation for a third of a century
1: okay so and is that we the, the is that where this for, is, sorry that's is that where we go- yes no I'm sorry for the we got a minimal delay here but is that where things are going because yes. i don't know how else you stop this i i understand i think everyone listening understands the people saying yes things are expensive i need to catch up but it, as you say, it feeds it. So is that the only way, what you just described, to stop this?
7: Well, I believe it is. Uh, I think most economists do, and the record shows. And there's lots of countries around the world that disagree. Turkey said that int- increasing interest rates ca- um, uh, causes inflation, so he cut them, and he promptly drove the inflation rate up to 80%. 80. 80, 0 Argentina, similar. So there are countries that deny the, the general logic of what I'm saying, and they're dealing with horrendous inflation. This is not about a good versus bad. A lot of people say, well, why would you advocate something that's so terrible? This is a choice between bad and worse. So then what comes down to are rising interest rates as the antidote to rising inflation worse than rising inflation? And uh, I think there's a consensus amongst a lot of people, certainly economists that study this and policy analysts and so forth, that um, inflation, and I don't mean two percent inflation. Okay, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about two, three, two, or three, or four. We're talking eight, or nine, or ten, or twelve, or fourteen. And what the record showed was, and I'm talking the late seventies, was kicking the problem down the road or refusing to confront it. And for those who say, "Oh, well, that was then," I want to talk about today. Great, we have a laboratory experiment going on in Argentina. We have another one going on in venezuela we have another one going on in turkey and that's just three countries i can find a whole bunch more where they have refused to confront inflation and it's just skyrocketed the thing about inflation is it builds into expectations as you just described unions understandably i'm not blaming the unions i'm not blaming the workers that's the unfortunate truth the only way you can break that inflationary cycle, that inflationary psychology of ever-ratcheting-up increases. One union says, hey, I don't have enough to live, so I want 12%. And then the next union says, well, we need 14 And it goes ever up until you do what Governor uh, Bowie at the Bank of Canada in 7980, and uh, Chairman Volcker did. And they said, okay, we're going to – basically they engineered a recession. And they said we're going to squ- we're going to break the inflationary expectation with a recession. Now they didn't come out and say that publicly, but that's basically what they did.
1: But is there and, anything in our current situation? I mean, can it, it, you can never look at two moments in time as exactly the same. So when that may have worked, painful as it may have been back then, if the same effort was done or the same plan was done now, is everything else the same, or do we run the risk of? unintended consequences, because there are different circumstances in our world right now, so it might not work the same and could I'm,
7: end up I'm being hearing, way worse. I'm hearing, by the way, to be fair, I'm hearing this from a lot of different people saying, well, that was then, this is now. We're, we're dealing with the logic.
0: Hmm. We're not
7: dealing with the history. They hit the fact that it happened in 70 70- Inflation's been around since ancient times. This is not something we discovered this week in Canada. Inflation exists around the world in different countries. N- Milton Friedman won a Nobel Prize. In dealing with these issues of how government exacerbates, sometimes causes, sometimes exacerbates inflation by putting far, far too much stimulus into the system, both monetary and fiscal. Monetary meaning you drive interest rates down to unbelievably low levels, which is exactly what we did. And then dumping a huge amount, and we did two-thirds of a trillion dollars. And we subsidized everybody in sight, not just the 15% that lost their job in the pandemic. I'm not saying we caused it, the, the, the shutdown. Uh, of the supply chains, the lockdowns uh, caused it, but then we made it much worse. So do the Americans, so do the countries. so now we 're paying the price and uh, so what I'm saying is the logic has never changed. Nobody suggests that arithmetic is different today than it was in ancient Egyptian times when it was invented hmm. in other words the 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 idea of interest rates is based on arithmetic it's called subtraction. I'm not being funny or flippant here. You, what the interest rate does. And it does it everywhere you do it. It doesn't matter if you do it 2,000 years ago or 100 years ago or 20 years ago or today. It takes money out of everybody's pocket because you're paying more in interest rate directly or indirectly. Even if you don't owe any money to those people out there who say, well, I don't owe any debt. It doesn't hurt me. Yes, but businesses, all the businesses that make all the products that we buy in all the stores, they have revolving lines of credit. And those revolving lines of credit are priced off prime. I was a lender at the time. Uh, And so it's prime plus one, prime plus two, prime plus three. So when the rate goes up, the cost of borrowing to the business goes up. And then they pass that on uh, either through higher prices or they start cutting people, which is what they often do. So it's based, the logic of interest rate increases to combat inflation is based on arithmetic and subtraction. And I do not believe that there's a separate arithmetic for 100 years ago versus today or for Egyptians versus Americans. I just don't believe that. Mm. It's a universal, arithmetic is universal, you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And we all learn it, at least I hope we do, in school. And the logic of interest rates is based on subtraction. It's contractionary, just like a tax increase is contractionary. It takes money out of your pocket. The opposite of contractionary is stimulative. That's what the Trudeau government is doing right now and running deficits of $50 billion a year. In my—I'm trying to be a little bit colorful here—they are stimulating the inflation mm. because they're pumping stimulus into the economy to make it grow hotter. The Bank of Canada is trying to cool the economy by taking money out of our pockets so we have less money to spend on restaurants, on trips, on cars, on vacations, on renovations. That's the logic of interest rate increases. It's the same logic everywhere. And it's a universal logic because it's based on the universal language of arithmetic. And then the only question is, okay, how far does it have to go? Yeah. Now, that is contextual, meaning it's dependent on the circumstances of a particular economy at a particular point of time. I am not suggesting we have to go to 20% interest rates. Not at all, at all. we got to jump in. Dr.
1: Doctor Lee, I, got to, I wish we could keep going. Do, i got to jump in. But Dr. Ian Lee from right. the Sprott School of Business, thank you for doing this this morning. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks very much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
1: There is only one thing that I am going to not miss about the Hamilton Bulldogs being in town this year, (laughs) and it is hearing that song 4,000 times a year. That is the one small blessing of the fact that the Bulldogs are not in town, but the only one, Uh, they are now in Brantford. And training camp has started and probably there already this morning in his new town of Brantford, GM Matt Turk. Sir, how are you this morning?
8: I'm doing great, Scott. How are you doing?
1: I, I I am okay. So first time in I think it's twenty seven years, we are starting heading into the fall without a training camp and without a Bulldogs team in Hamilton. It's weird.
8: It is odd. Um you know, especially for, for us here too, uh, you know, new location. But so far it's been seamless. We've got a great team around us here uh, and support to uh, to make the transition pretty
1: uh, seamless. The uh, the Ham- uh, Brantford, I'm, I'm going to mess up about 10 times here, and I'll probably call them the Hamilton Bulldogs before we're done. But um, the, the Brantford Arena was not in OHL shape when the announcement was even made that they were, you guys were going to be going there. Um, they've had four months, five months, maybe. Uh, what's the shape of the Civic Center right now? Is it ready to go?
8: I was there yesterday. It looks great. Um, you know, boards and glass uh, should be done this week. Uh, score clock's going in. Uh, the dressing room's pretty much uh, about 90% done. So, wow, we're looking at getting in there, you know, probably the third week of uh, September full-time.
1: Are you are you amazed that it's been able to go that fast? Because I am.
8: I, You know what? I am amazed. Um, you know, a lot of concerns I had early on um, were, uh, you know, even with Target's deadlines and, you know, construction always gets delayed. But, uh, you know, uh, we, we've got a, a fantastic owner, Michael Anlauer and he partnered up with the Vacano Group and, you know, the... Uh, Council of uh, of Brantford it has been fantastic. So I think just everybody working together to see what can get done is really incredible, especially for me to see it live.
1: You mentioned Michael Anlauer. Uh, since you mentioned that, I'll go there. Um uh, he, I believe it was this week that I just heard, or we read that he has been approved by the NHL's executive committee to buy the Ottawa Senators. We we knew that was coming, but it had to be the official thing. Has has is is he still around? What what is his involvement right now with the Bulldogs? Since he does have now an NHL team that he's also getting involved with.
8: He's always been, you know, he's. He's always had, uh, you know, a soft spot for this bulldog team. I, I don't think anything uh, will change there. Obviously, he's got, uh, um, you know, the big club to look after as well. But uh, I, I believe he'll be here this week to, uh, to kind of check things out here um, on the arena and, uh, and the team. So, um, you know, I he's got a passion for this team, and I don't think that's going to go away.
1: What has been, I I know the reception in Brantford was pretty good when, or very good when the announcement was made that the team was going to be coming there. I know their city council was very excited and I know they had a great response with season tickets. Uh, Are you already, are people coming out now? Is it, is it looking different than it has in the past as far as number of people who are showing up for training camp or, or is it, or, or is that still to come?
8: I, you know what, we, we don't really publicize training camp too much. We have a black and gold game tomorrow at uh, 3 p.m. at Gretzky Center, which is more open to the public. But, uh, there have been people kind of popping in similar to Hamilton. We have the, you know, the passionate fans who find out who, uh, you know, when we're on the ice and they want to get an early look. And we, we've had that in, 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 Br- in Brantford, similar to what we had in Hamilton. But I think the real buzz will be, um, you know, exhibition games. And then, uh, when we start, uh, you know, our first, uh, home opener.
1: Where, where are right now tickets? I mean, it's a much smaller arena, obviously than first Ontario center was everything in the league is smaller than first Ontario center was, but, um, I I mean, I know you guys had done very well as far as ticket sales, season ticket sales. What about individual? I mean, if somebody here was going to say, I want to come and see a game in Brantford this year, is there an endless supply left or, or are you guys getting close to being full?
8: I would say not endless supply, I'd say limited, but, um, but there, you know, there, there will be tickets. Um, but I, I would say that we should be pretty much sold out every game. Um, you know, we go from the biggest building to the smallest building, but, uh, and we have, you know, a, a great fan base in Hamilton you know a lot of those fans will be coming over too, and a new fan base uh, in Brantford. So the, the buzz has been very, very positive here everywhere you go. People are talking about the team and, and, uh, you know, I, I believe it's, uh, I I believe we have a good team too. So it's not like, uh, you know, you know, a new team coming it's, it's kind of a, a good team. That's, uh, that's taking a step. Um, you know, two years ago, we only had, I think we finished June 29th and we only had probably five weeks, six weeks to train this year. We've had probably four and a half months. So, you know, seeing the kids, uh, you know, this morning and, um, you know, there's definitely a difference, you know, when you see teenagers, they, they change over four and a half months, especially if they put the work in.
1: I've uh, got to let you go, but how many times over the summer have you slipped up and referred to the team as the Hamilton Bulldogs?
8: I catch myself quite often, <laughs> almost every day. So day. Don't feel bad, Scott, I, I we're, 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 we're getting used to it, but... Uh, you know, hopefully uh, in a couple months uh, w- we'll be okay on that.
1: That is Matt Turek. He is general manager of the Brantford Bulldogs. It's still, uh, it still sounds funny to say it, but uh, such is the case. Uh, Matt, appreciate you doing this. Thanks. Thanks,
0: Scott. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900-CHML and online at 900-CHML.com.